0: Welcome everybody to the Stand Up For Kids podcast. I'm your host, Mike Olson. I'm the Director of Development with Stand Up For Kids. And today we're going to take on the topic of foster care. And so we have our guest, Rich Bates who is currently a staff, a new staff member with Stand Up For Kids. Um, so he, he's got a background as a foster parent. He's also done a lot of volunteering in his background, and we'll get into the ins and outs of Rich. But but welcome, Rich.
1: Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. Um, it's exciting to be able to share a little bit about my experience in the foster care system and my work with stand-up. So.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. So I guess let's just jump right in with why did you decide to be a foster parent? The short answer is
1: probably because we're crazy. Um, my wife and I have raised four kids i I, we still are raising four kids but a a few years back we had we looked around and our kids were all um teenagers and soon like some of them were already aging out Uh, my youngest son now at 17 looked around this big old house and we were spending a lot of times by ourselves and just with our dogs and we said well how do we, how do we use this, this space? Can we use this space better? And, and instead of, you know, remodeling or moving into a smaller place, we, we decided to foster. So we had, we had talked about it for a few years and we had looked into it and, um, it just, it just seemed like at that time that the time was right. The need was great. And so we decided to dive in and, and see what it would be like for us to to be a part of it. So.
0: Yeah. So what did you know about foster care going in? Um, cause I'm just thinking about myself and I know very little about it. So to jump off the deep end on something like that, uh, I would imagine there's a lot of research on the front end to figure out like, what am I getting myself into?
1: Yeah. So initially, not a whole lot. I mean, I had read an article, I think in the Orange County Register at one point about the need for foster parents and we had done a little bit of research um, on, on the need and kind of some of the profile. Uh, but really what we ended up doing is we, we went with a foster care agency that was out of Long Beach that was connected both to LA County and Orange County. And they did, they had a really extensive like orientation and training process to get you, it's a very, very involved process actually to become a foster parent. And so through that was really like our education by fire hose. So as we started to learn more, not just about the need, but really the issues that face these kids, why they're in foster care, what the parents are dealing with, what our role would look like. And That was a total of 40 something hours of of training and orientation and and along with all these other steps that you have to do in terms of preparing your house and your cars and all of these other things, way more than we ever had to do to become parents on our own. Um, Becoming a foster parent was actually quite, quite difficult. And even after all of those steps, and the fire hose of information and training and resources, we felt like we were marginally prepared. But by the time we got kids in our house, it, it didn't feel like we were prepared at
0: all. So, <laughs> yeah. So, that, I mean, to, that sounds like a lot of hurdles and it would be intimidating. Um, so, you've got to be something there that makes you really want to do that. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I I think, you know, when it started
1: off, it was one of those, like, kind of pie in the sky, you know, there's a need out there, there's kids that are hurting. And as you start to go through the training process, and you start to hear stories of families and kids that are that are suffering, and you and you realize that the advantages and the things that you take for granted in your life in terms of, you know, stable housing and, and money and food and healthcare and all, all of these things that, you know, over time, you just, you're, you're accustomed to in your life. And then you start to see that how different it is for so many people and what that effect ends up happening on so many families and these kids. And then you start looking at the kids and they think without intervention, the cycles that They the trauma that they endure and the things that end up being a part of their life, not just as kids, but ongoing. And you think, is this something where we can make some kind of difference in their lives and help break some of these cycles um, by being a part of their lives? And so that became I think as we heard more stories and you hear more, you you start talking to people that are doing it currently and you think, okay, this is going to be really hard. But this can also potentially have a really big effect on a child's life. And for us, that was, that was really the linchpin of why we decided to, you know, fully commit to it and, and jump in.
0: Yeah. Cause I feel like there, there's a lot of people that, you know, want to help fix the world and want to do good things. Some people write a check to do that. Some people volunteer to do that. Some people take a 40 hour training. And go through a lot of bureaucratic paperwork and vetting, and uh, then have a stranger live in their house for X period of time. So, I guess kudos for you for, for wanting to do something like that. I guess like you still have a lot of questions, like what, what, uh, where does where to start with that? So you go through this long process, and you become Thumb, you get you get the thumbs up. You can now have a youth or multiple youth in your home. So let's let's talk about that. Once you got to that point, how do you how do you connect with that first youth?
1: So that whole part is where I think one of the first moments when we realized like how crazy the journey was going to be because everything is presented as you go through training and orientation. It's it's very organized and very, you know, this is the process. And then once you're certified and they literally do give you a certificate of your house is now open for, and we, we were open to two kids and our original uh, you kind of give them the demographics you're looking for. And so we didn't really care much about, you know, who we were housing um, you know, boys, girls, ages, other than we didn't want kids that were, Anywhere near like the ages of our kids, so we didn't want to do teenagers because we thought that might be a you know a conflict with our kids, and so we that those were the only parameters we had. And we literally a, a week after being certified, we get a call and said, "Hey, we've got these two boys, um, twenty months and three, that are brothers. Can you take them?" And it, once you say yes, then within hours you have a couple of kids coming to your house. And so it is because they've already detained the kids at that point. And so they've detained them from their parents and they show up and, and these are things that we didn't really understand or know about. And in hindsight, you, you think about like here's two little kids and they show up and they're scared and they're disoriented and they're just, they've, they've literally, as bad as the situation may have been, they're ripped from their parents, right? And there's a police officer there and a social worker there. And um, they show up with us. And, you know, obviously for us, all we want to do is love on them. But you look back and you think, man, what would that feel like when you're three years old or 20 months old or, you know, whatever. And so it was And then for us, we're just like, okay, we just went from having a house full of, you know, older teenagers that are self-sufficient into like, we got a baby and a three-year-old and you got to watch constantly. And so our lives were, you know, immediately changed from not just having like some strangers in your home, but from having little ones in your home. And, and, And so it became not just the caretaking part of it, because everybody thinks about that, like, okay, now you're changing diapers and you're feeding and you're doing, there's all these things that you're doing that are taking up time and your, your attention and effort. But it's then it's thinking about how am I meeting the emotional needs of this, this child that's, you know, how, what am I doing to try to, you know, entertain them and, and get them to think about like, Hey, this can be okay. And these aren't, these are nice people that you're with. And, Um, so those first few weeks were really, really strange because they, on one hand, it's like, it it feels a little bit like you're babysitting, but then you start realizing and and feeling like now this is just another part of our family and another part of our house. Um, and that was always our goal because we had heard stories of foster parents that, you know, you, you hear things all the time where kids say, well, I was just the outsider or I never got like, a dresser you know they're they're carrying their clothes around in gross you know garbage bags because they didn't get their own dresser or you know they had special rules for them than their the biological kids and that for us was man we just said if we're going to take in kids these are just going to be our kids these are just going to be part of our family and we didn't want to we weren't looking to adopt we weren't looking to actually legally grow our family but we just were saying hey if as long as they're staying with us they're part of our family and that's how we're gonna. We're going to treat them.
0: That makes me think of uh, having your own kid, kind of. So you have months and months and months of Uh buildup and planning, and oh my God, my life's going to change. But at the same time, you have no idea what you're about to walk into. And then a baby comes out, and your life is forever different. Uh, There's a before and after. So it sounds to me like there's a lot of parallels in the foster system uh, to a real baby.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's it's actually a great analogy. I mean, it it is so much the no matter how much you prepare, how much how much you think that you're like ready for this. And then it's like the first time that you're going through a sleepless night as a new parent and you're like, what do I do? And my desperation of my heart that I love this child so much and I can't fix what's going on. And there was so many moments as a foster parent with those kind of feelings where it was, I can't fix this. And I don't know what to do. Um, but I'm just going to hug them and hold them and love on them. And cause that's all I, that's all I can do.
0: And yeah, I, I feel like in my brain, I don't think about really, really young kids in the foster care system. I'm thinking about a teenager, I guess, in my, my brain. But yeah, when they're real young, then you like, they don't even know how to talk yet and they can't even communicate. I don't know, a a three-year-old, I've got a almost two-year-old, so I can't exactly speak to where a three-year-old is at in development, but just getting them to tell you what's wrong or what's right or what they need is a exercise in and of itself.
1: Yeah, that was, that was definitely like in the first month or so, that was quite an adventure because they were both, which is very common. They're very both developmentally disabled. So they weren't, um, the three-year-old was probably the language level of like maybe a 20-month-old when he was assessed. And so not, no complete sentences, even his speech, he had a hard time pronouncing certain things. And so it was very, very difficult to kind of understand. You didn't get a lot of information. They don't give you a lot of information up front about the family. So then you're trying to discover What's happening, or what did happen? the thing that ended up somewhat helping with that and it's it's a whole other chapter of this story, but um a month in we actually ended up finding out we we knew earlier on that these they were actually part of a sibling set of four uh four brothers um and we found out about a month in that the other two who were older that they were six and seven at the time had been placed with another family um and that placement was going very very poorly for them and we were asked by our agency if we would at all consider placing the four boys together in our home i i chuckle because looking back i i don't know what level of insanity we were we were at we were we were not we were not uh totally in our right minds maybe after a month of fostering i don't know but we did we did agree to it they made some special accommodations we end up we ended up uh figuring out a space with you know bunk beds and some creative ways that we did some things um and so we went from about six weeks earlier having an empty house or you know semi-empty with teenagers to um, now four kids ages seven and under and with all sorts of needs and issues and de- deals that they were dealing with, it did help us in terms of obviously the six and seven year old could communicate a lot more about their background and what, what their brothers liked and didn't like. So that, that part was helpful, but then we added in the school component and all of these other things that, um, and then a six and seven year old were way more affected by the trauma of the past situation. So yeah, we, w- we went from multiplying very, very quickly and causing ourselves all sorts of new challenges so
0: so and you already have kids of your own so in the initial discussions I'm guessing it was a I don't know did the kids did your existing children have a have a say in this whole process yeah absolutely I mean we you know as
1: a family we knew that like especially because of how our view of it was right that this was these were gonna be kids that were part of our family, right? And so we we said to our kids, like this has to be something that you guys see that you that that you're okay with. And not that there's an expectation that like your free childcare or anything, that there weren't specific things that you needed to do or be a part of. Um, but that you need to be okay with these, you know, these couple kids living in your house, um, and being part of our family and us sharing our time with them and our hearts and and you know, it's, it's one of those moments as a parent where, you know, proud parent moments, right? Where you, like our kids, all of them were like, well, of course. Like these are, you know, they, they, they probably knew more about the need of foster care than we did. And they, in terms of caring about hurting kids and caring about the unfortunate and the disadvantaged. And they, they all said, well, of course. Um, funny enough as the kids came in and became more and more a part of our family um we regularly saw our kids having that same type of relationship that we were having with these boys which was as family and so they were they were offering like hey can we take them to the park hey can we go you know take them for ice cream can we do do these things with them and so it was amazing um in my own kids' lives to see not just their desire to you know take care of these kids but i think some of the realization that like that what real issues can can really happen in childhood right that they had had a fortunate middle class you know upbringing never never really wanted i mean they would say they wanted for things but never really wanted for anything right and they saw these boys that were like great kids, great hearts, and yet had come from so much disadvantage and so much hurt and so much pain. Um And I think it, I think it really had a big impact on their lives and their perspective on humanity and their own, their own upbringing too. So.
0: Yeah. Cool. And you chose, so. Let's again go to the origin story. So you decided you wanted to do something like this and you chose foster care versus adoption. Um, So there is a temporary nature to foster care that is not there with adoption. Did you consider the adoption path? So.
1: That's a great question. So we, so as part of, there's actually been a whole bunch of reforms in California in terms of how they view foster care. And so as part of the certification process, you're actually being certified um, as a potential adoptive parent. So there's no, there used to be two very separate pathways and now there's one pathway. So you, you learn all about that as you go through certification. And at any point you can choose, you know, if that's, if that's something that you um desire and, and in fact we were asked with the boys fairly early on when it looked like that their case was kind of going sideways and that their parents weren't gonna be doing the things that they needed to do, is this something you know we we would consider? And I, I think in our minds we never it was never something that we locked out and said we would never do this. Uh but it but it wasn't our focus. And the reason why that was important to us is because we saw if if it was going to be a success story, and for us, a success story is you're breaking some generational cycles, not just with the kids, but with the family, and you're helping to restore a family to a better a, a better spot so that they can journey forward together and be better together. If we have in our focus to adopt, it, it's a conflicted goal in our minds, right? Because a lot of times we saw foster parents that were looking to adopt and it's very it's a lot harder to support the biological parents in those those cases because it's really it's contrasting things if the biological parents don't do well then you have the opportunity to adopt but if they do well then you don't have the opportunity to adopt and so for us we saw that adoption as a, as a matter of last resort and for us we wanted we wanted we and we realized this probably kind of four to five months into the journey is that we realized that it wasn't just about taking care of kids but it was about trying to help the family the biological family get better as well and support them however we could and and that's really where our journey took us that we ended up mentoring the mom the biological mom it's certainly not a it's not a designated part of foster care but that was for us as we saw like hey if these boys are going to have a long-term chance of success and breaking these cycles mom's got to have her act together
0: too so Hmm. okay so that's interesting to me i didn't know that and so the 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 idea that the adoption component is like always hanging around um, makes for some like kind of high stakes um, situations is it, you're thinking about this as a temporary thing. And then who knows what happens with the biological family that takes that pathway maybe off the table in, in certain scenarios. And so if you do not keep the child, then Then what? Then they go to another foster care family or they get bounced around and do you want them to do that? And uh, it's a whole genre of open-ended questions. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's where, that's why we said we never closed that door because we knew probably for the older two, especially that there was no way that four of them would ever be adopted together. Like, you know, it, it just, the realities of you learn the realities of the situation and, Most adoption in foster care takes place with kids under five, so a lot of kids. That's where you end up hearing about kids that are in long-term foster care, and they're. And this is heartbreaking, but basically the system, and they don't they don't say this officially, but the system considers past the age of nine um, that they're unadoptable because the adoption percent, like I said, the majority adopt under five. From five to nine, you get a little, you know, the chunk is a little bit, um, and then pretty much over the age of nine that the adoption rates are minuscule. So, so then, like single digit percentages.
0: So yeah, pe- people just don't want to adopt kids that are over nine for whatever reason. There's probably been many studies on that subject on why that is and whatnot, but that is the reality of of the situation.
1: In a lot of it, I think, it one, people don't go in looking for it, but then also as you've been a part of the system, right, and then you see like as a kid, if if a kid, let's say they've been in long-term foster care, like say they got in at five and they're still in at 14, they've probably, just by the averages, they've probably been in many, many homes that every time they move homes, the studies have shown that their trauma increases, right, their separation, anxiety, the depression, all the things that go along with that. And so it really starts becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because they become more and more hurt by the process that's supposed to help them, which is being in foster care and getting the help they need. But yet it it continues to, the longer they're in and the more they get bounced around to break down their psyche more and more and more so that in a lot of ways they do become unadoptable for people that look and say, well, they're too broken for me and what a horrible like view of, of a child, of a human to say they're no longer redeemable. They, they can't be a part of a family anymore because of everything they've been through. And that was just heartbreaking to, to think about. In fact, we've actually, even though we've stepped away from foster care now, we've actually talked about in the future, the long term future as our kids get older is potentially looking at doing fostering for older kids because It is, especially with the older ages, it's so broken.
0: Yeah, but I guess, I mean, if you look back at yourself when you first got into the foster system and you're, you don't know what you're doing and you're a little intimidated in the first place. So taking on a older youth that is going to be more of a challenge um, is, you know, just the reality of the situation a little bit is that, you know, it's, it's not the first place you're probably going to go, which is unfortunate Very interesting. So I guess my question is the temporary nature of foster care. Um so again the goal believe the goal is correct me if I'm wrong but it's really to put the put the youth back in with their original families as soon as possible. So it's a temporary placeholder. You're a temporary placeholder family that is trying to provide that nurturing uh nurturing Backstop for a a family that's going through some things that are hopefully going to pop out on the on the other side, so that in and of itself is temporary, and you talked about like making these kids feel like your own. so imagine that's a difficult balance because you know or most likely that kid is going to leave you at some point, so you're going to build up this bond and treat them as your family member, and then they're going to go away and That's going to be hard. Um, So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. So that's, yeah, I I think that if you
1: are like us and you say they're just going to be a part of our family, we, we love them without limits. So, and maybe it's some cognitive dissonance, but we never... We never thought about when they were going to leave. Like we always knew it was there, like, you know, logically you, and you never know, like moments. I mean, there's, there's literally times where it's like, okay, they're leaving tomorrow. Like it's, it could, they can leave as fast as they come. Usually there's a process building up. And in our case, there actually was, and it was, it was all done very, very well. But yeah, I mean, it just, for us, much like, I think a lot of life, like you we're none of us are guaranteed anything, right? We don't know with our, our parents. We don't know with our kids. We don't know with our spouses. Um, we don't know how long anybody's going to be in our life in, in terms of friends and whatever. And so we really live with that philosophy of living out today um, the best we can, right? And so that's all we knew. We were guaranteed today when the kids woke up in our house and we were going to Love them to the very best, do everything we could to fight for them in terms of the things they needed, whether it was healthcare or mental health or, um, you know, schooling. It, it, just like your own kids, like you, you wake up every day and say, what, how am I going to make the world better for, for my kids? And so for these foster kids, it, that's, that's all it was. It it, it didn't, we, we didn't think about like putting boundaries around our feelings because we knew we knew no matter what, when they left, it was going to hurt. It didn't matter what kind of boundaries we put around it because they were in our home and they were in our lives. And so, man, it, it, it hurt like crazy when they left. But we also, man, it was it was so neat that their mom had been on this journey where their dad didn't do the things he was needed to do and he had gone off, he ended up in prison, but their mom had just she had done everything every class every like she was planning for her future she was asking us for advice and questions and we were parenting by the end like we were parenting these kids alongside of her and i'll never forget the kids um the day they went home we uh we took them to mcdonald's and it was just like another day we took them for ice cream and that was our last you know kind of moment with them and then we we dropped them off with their mom and they didn't really understand much like they didn't understand when they were being detained, exactly what that meant. But she, their mom wrote a few weeks later, wrote us this letter, this handwritten letter. In that letter, she, she just detailed out how, one of the lines that I remember, and she said, you loved my kids when I wasn't able to. And how powerful for a mom to recognize her own struggles, her own the her own cycles that she had been in through, you know, poverty and addiction and these and violence and and to say, man, these are people that I entrusted my my kids lives to and that I value and, and because of that we ended up, you know seeing the kids multiple times, even when they were back with her. Um, they ended up moving back to by her family in New Mexico, but we've we've stayed in contact with her in support of her. Um, and that all only could come out of the fact that we just love them and we wanted them to, you know, succeed as a family. And unfortunately, you know, when you see a lot of the statistics of, of foster care, like it's something like I think it's like 20,000 kids every year age out of foster care, like they turn 18, and they're no longer, you know, eligible. And statistically, they say, within 18 months, like 50% of those kids actually end up homeless. And so then it's like, that brings us right into the work, you know, the work that we do now and, and why investing, you know, the more you invest early on, why hopefully you, you stop some of those cycles early, because that's where they end up otherwise.
0: Wow. So are they, are, is the family in a good place now? Do you know?
1: They are. Yeah. She's mom has gone back to school to she was working as a waitress and she's gone back to school to I think some kind of an accounting program and they're living with her brother. Her parents are in sight. The kids are
0: all, you know,
1: they're doing, they're doing okay, you yeah. know? So, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, just think about the impact that you're having on that family and those kids are going to grow up and they're going to have a family and the love that you poured into them in that period of time when they really needed somebody the most. I mean, who knows how that's going to manifest itself over the course of time. So it's, it's really cool.
1: Yeah, that's what you hope for. I mean, you know, everybody always talks about like, it's, you can look back, and this was something that was always in our mind, because we had talked about like, Think back of like as a kid, even like people that were important to you that like those people like they may not remember like our names or even all the specifics, but you remember people that as a kid, that had an impact on your life in a positive way, and so we hope that, yeah, like it's it's something where as bad of an experience as it is for a kid to be in foster care um and away from their family, even if their family's not doing great that hopefully they can look back at that time and and there's things that we did that were long term yeah good for them
0: cool uh and so yeah so you had a journey in the foster care arena um and I know we could we could spend much much longer with interesting conversation there but eventually that time ended and not too long after that uh you found stand up for kids and I I'm guessing that's not by accident uh, maybe you can share just a little bit about how how you connected with Stand Up for Kids.
1: Absolutely. So I, for for us as a family, and I always include my wife as part of this, is that we we just believe that there's far more to living each day than just thinking about ourselves and 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 how do we? I mean, it can seem very kind of. High in the sky, but how do you make the world a better place and I know you alluded to like or you talked about like you know do you give time or money or whatever it might be right and so uh one of the things that brought us to this to to stand up was understanding that i I wanted to be involved in an organization that was looking at the same kind of missional type things that that we believed in which was you know helping to break some of those cycles with youth that lead them to the place of being homeless or having housing uncertainty and one of the things that i felt like made stand up so unique as i researched different organizations was they weren't concerned with just addressing the actual issue of housing, because that's, that's one part, right? And it's an important part. Obviously, we, you get people in housing, it makes a difference, but it's all of the things, it's addressing that whole person, right? And, and looking at them and saying, what are the things that got you here? And what are the things that are going to keep you from having to ever go back here? If we, if we walk this journey with you, and that's, you know, the whole, you know, the stand up journey is, you know, figuring out, can you be self-sufficient? And in order to get self-sufficient, you got to look at, you know, your past and your mental health and your physical health and your all of the, the things that are part of that. And that was exciting to me to be able to say, you know, being able to have impactful type work and direct work with with youth, not maybe housing them in my house, but like having that impactful um, part of their lives where, again, somebody they could look back on and say, this is somebody that is actually cares about me as a person and wants better for me as a person. So.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah, a lot of parallels with our organization and in the fostering ideals that foster parents would have. Um, So just to, I guess, I'm going to summarize your journey with stand up for kids and correct me if I'm wrong, but you found us, you found us originally with your research, and then you came on board um, as a as a mentor. Um, so I think you went to was at Huntington Beach mm-hmm. um, originally uh, and did some mentoring for a while. I guess I mean, you should tell the story. It's your story. Uh, but kind of explain your journey uh, along the along your trajectory with Stand Up for Kids.
1: So yeah, you, you hit the first part. Uh, we did some mentoring in Huntington beach and then um, we actually, it was interesting. We actually thought my, when we first, after our first foster experience, we had said, okay, well, we're, my wife was a hundred percent. Like she was done. Like she said, I can't go through the emotional part of, of this again. Um, so, but it, it about 6 months or so in she kind of came around and said hey I think I'm, I might be ready to you know do some fostering again." so in the midst of volunteering um we actually did decide to put our name back in the bucket for fostering we ended up with a 18 month old boy that came to us um who ended up being with us just for a couple months but that ended up being kind of a break in volunteering because then I was his full time caregiver um and then around that same time soon after I, some of this is revisionist history because I've heard things that were said or talked about, but I know that my name had come up in different discussions within Santa for kids. And so I was reached out to and said, Hey, we have this issue with trying to manage volunteers and then COVID hit, and then it became a whole bigger issue. And ultimately it was, yeah, let's, let's figure out how I can get back involved in, and in volunteering in that, in that, in that regard. And so I, somewhere in April came aboard in that that type of volunteer role and started looking at how do we manage this influx of volunteers? How do we do things you know more efficiently? how do we train them right? and then moved into just within the last few weeks into also um, doing um, some housing advocacy work for uh, stand up um through it through an actual a staff position as well. So um, it feels like every month I'm around, then it just becomes you you're, you're more cemented in, I guess. So Uh,
0: I can speak to that for sure. (laughs) But yeah, so you, 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 you were a mentor, you got the kind of on the ground experience, and that is a very key component to what we do, the one-to-one interaction. Uh, And you spoke to the COVID issue that caused us all to go virtual uh, it actually, you know, brought on a lot of opportunities for us as far as virtual learning or sorry, virtual mentoring, virtual tutoring, and made that now accessible to a lot of the public that maybe couldn't make it to an individual session in Huntington Beach, but could jump on at lunch for a mentoring call with a youth. Uh, and so we actually had a, a huge influx of volunteer support with coronavirus hitting, which is, uh, you know, one of those glass half full type of situation. Yeah. Uh, but it was a large influx. And thus, um, you came on board kind of in the middle of that and helped us kind of deal with it. So you're a key player in that. And then, yeah, like you said, the housing navigator, I don't know what the title is exactly, but that role kind of just fell into your lap as well. Um, but I'm I'm proud to have you as a staff member alongside of us now. I know you, you know, as of two weeks ago, you were volunteering substantial amount of hours and i know we i know i know you a little bit um but we talked about kind of you your decision making process in volunteering versus going back to work because you were a successful sales ish person so maybe you can speak to speak to that a little bit
1: yeah I, i i think going back again to you know what what we value. And also I think recognizing, I know there's been a lot of things in the news recently and as, as people kind of wrestle with things around privilege and what that means and what that looks like. And for us, um certainly like not in any kind of a, a political way, but it, it certainly means we, we both, my wife and I came from, You know, working class, blue collar families and didn't have much growing up. And we've been fortunate together to be able to, you know, build a good life together. And my wife is very successful in her career. I was successful in my career. And as we got to the point a few years ago through some other life circumstances where I wasn't working for some other reasons. And then once I was able to again, it just as we talked about it it just represented do we want more for ourselves or do we want to be able to give my time in ways that could actually benefit others and and we know um man we're we're that is where when i bring up the word privilege we know that we're privileged to be able to make that decision that we know some families that's not even a consideration and and so we don't we don't take that lightly it's not something that um, I talk to a lot of people about, or we flout, but it is it is just something that it was in our hearts to say. Look, if if we're fine and, and good from a, a financial standpoint with with her working, then how can I give of my time to support the things that we want to support, and and how can we make a difference in in the world around us? And so that's how you know really where it became you know in in a lot of ways full-time volunteering, I guess, <laughs> you know, in a way. And so, and, and a lot of my time, even though I am technically on staff, I mean, a lot of my time is still spent volunteering with, with up as well. So.
0: Yeah. So I think a lot of people would, you know, on, on, on its face, what you did would say, you're crazy. You could, you could go make a bunch of money. You're a really successful sales guy who could probably make a ton of commission. Um, And you made a conscious choice to say, you know what, that's, not the best use of my time maybe or um i think i i can i can leverage my skills and you know give more meaning to my life and so that to me is not not crazy it's a it's a calculated decision that that you made and you know i'm i don't know do you have any at this point do you have any second guessing of that decision and i guess you can always go back if you decide you want to, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing that if it, if it ever, you know, because in talking to friends, like that's the, you know, well, what happened, you know, what, what if something happened, you know, with my wife or with her job or whatever. And yeah, I mean, I, I always do have the fallback. Um, but, I, but we've also talked about and thought like, it wasn't so much about like the money consideration. It, it's kind of like akin to the, the fostering situation. It wasn't like w- when you're giving, you're just giving not out of consideration of what might happen. And so volunteer versus non-volunteering, it wasn't so much about, it wasn't just considering the money part of it. It was considering what was meaningful to me and doing meaningful work. I I just never, like for me, um, it wasn't, it wasn't meaningful what I was doing and selling and, and being a part of the field I was. It was it was earning a living, which is fine. And that there's nothing, I don't disparage that at all. But for me, um, I had come to a place in life where I just, I wanted to have more meaning in in what I was doing. And so that doesn't mean like, I'm not like, well, I can't work because that's, you know, it's not like an opposition to earning money or anything like that. It's just to say, whatever I'm doing, the work that I'm doing, whether it's as a volunteer or being paid for that, I want it to align with what i care about which is you know helping the marginalized of of
0: our world so yeah and i think i think there's a lot of people that could echo that similar sentiment hey i get paid really well and i have a you know a job that affords me a a grand lifestyle does it is it moving the needle from a meaning perspective well i don't know maybe not and i think a lot of people i mean i had the similar Process and I eventually transferred into nonprofit from from engineering. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of our volunteers, could probably echo a lot of the similar sentiment where hey, they still got a full time job, but they that they that they need for their financial well being, um, but they still got that big heart that they want to leverage um, in the best way possible to make as much impact as they can. So yeah, that, that's maybe the good place to close this out. Maybe you can share. So for those people that are listening right now, that you know want to do a little something, want to give back, and you as the volunteer coordinator person, maybe you can speak to kind of what's what we're looking for right now from a volunteer, and kind of what's what's coming down the pike this fall. Sure,
1: for us, you know, and my my view on all of that is, I think you know we all have we all have different talents, we all have different resources, we all have different passions, and. It's never about equality in giving. It's about, you know, what's meaningful to us and what we're able to do at a time. And so to your point, there's people that are working full-time jobs and they're able to volunteer for an hour a week. Um, And that's fantastic. And there's other people that can give us a little bit more time. And there's some people that don't have any time to volunteer, but can give financially. And so all of those things are impactful to the work that we do. And the the beautiful thing about stand up is i think that we do a really good job of really trying to figure out the best roles for people and and having roles that almost no matter what your skills are what your talent what your passion is um if you care about our mission in terms of trying to help youth that are dealing with homelessness there's there's a place for you and that might be through direct You know, interaction with the youth through mentoring or tutoring. Um, it could be through helping us on the, the backside through marketing and social media and donors. Um, it could be helping us through trying to bridge gaps with government agencies and other social service agencies, um, helping deliver food for us. So there's so many different ways that somebody can get involved. And really all it takes is, is that desire to be a part of doing something bigger than yourself and we train you as you know, and, and we will give people the resources they need. Uh, The thing that we can't give anybody is do you, do you have a heart for the work that we're doing? And if you do, then, you know, reach out and we'll, we'll find a place for you.
0: Yeah. And our website is www.standupforkids.org slash orange County. So you can go there if you're curious and want to kind of learn more. Um, There is some, there's some forms there for, for getting involved. Well, thanks, Rich. Uh, This was really good. Thanks for your time. Uh, It was very insightful, and uh, I appreciate having you. Thanks, Mike. It was great. Thank you for listening today to Listen Up, the Stand Up for Kids podcast. A big thank you to our production team consisting of associate producer Billy Quinn and editors Kariba Kalka, Pablo Ortega, and Michelle Bernay. Find us on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Stand Up for Kids, please share this podcast with family, friends, and colleagues. Also, check out our website at standupforkids.org slash orangecounty, and you can email me directly at michaelo at standupforkids.org to learn more. Please also consider a donation to help getting kids off the streets. 95 cents out of every dollar donated goes directly to support our kids. I'm your host, Michael Olson, Director of Development at Stand Up For Kids Orange County. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.